Well, good morning, Hope Point Church. It is indeed a joy to be with you this morning. My name is Chris, and along with my wife Jen and our three kids, in six weeks or so, they will be seven, five, and three. And in six days, we will fly halfway around the world back to where we normally stay in South Asia. So you can imagine what those 30 to 40 hours of travel is like. Seven, five, and three. We covet your prayers. If I look familiar uh, to you, that's great, because I actually had the privilege of being here opening the word of the Lord last year at almost exactly this same time, the very first Sunday in January last year. And if your 2021 did not go the way that you wanted, I'm here to try to do better this time. The, the title of this morning's sermon is The Angels and Aziz. The Angels and Aziz. And we're going to be primarily in Colossians, just the end of the first chapter and just going into the easiest little bit of the second chapter. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I'd encourage you to open it to that text. While you're doing that, we'll get to Aziz in a minute, but first I want to start with the angels, and in fact, one angel in particular. There she is, right there between her mother and me. That is my daughter, Eden. She is five, and somehow she is 30,000 times more precious than she appears in this photo, by the Lord's grace. Eden loves many things, but one of the things she loves the most is whispering. I think it makes sense, though. Like, of all the forms of communication, whispering is really the most grown-up because it inherently contains two very grown-up things. One is mystery because not everybody gets to know what you're saying. And second is urgency. The thing that you're communicating is clearly very significant, time-sensitive, because if it weren't, well, you would just wait until another time in which you could speak full voice. But because the thing that you are sharing is so urgent, so time-sensitive, so significant, you must whisper. Of course, Eden is a big fan of whispering, but that doesn't mean that she's good at it. But not in the way that you would expect. You might be thinking, oh, she's pretty loud. That's true in many occasions, but she's got the dynamics of whispering down. It's just the content that needs work. It results in a lot of situations like I had at my dinner table maybe three months ago, where I'm seated with my wife and my children, and my daughter Eden gets the hankering to whisper. So she leans over to her elder brother, and I'll quote her here, and says the following. She wants to whisper but has nothing to say. My son, being ever the literalist, has no time for this, he looks at her and I again quote and says, stop it, Eden, you sound like a bunch of snakes. <laughs> the scriptures are far more successful in their whispers. As the Old Testament in particular offers up shadows and types and whispers of a coming salvation, not fully realized, discrete disclosures, if you, will, if you will, that will later 
be fully realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ when he comes. But unexpected people, characters in God's word, more than just my daughter Eden, become very interested in the content and meanings of these things, as we'll see. Let's take a look at 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 10. It says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. Verse 11, They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. See what's happening here. The prophets who prophesied about these things, in whose prophecies some of these whispers, these types, these shadows were contained, were inquiring as to the Spirit of Christ, trying to get a fuller revelation of what are these things that they are communicating, desiring to understand them fully. But it's not just the prophets who are a bit perplexed. Starting in verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. Can you imagine the gospel that has been freely proclaimed to us for years and decades and centuries and millennia, the very angels of heaven were longing to understand how God would fix all that sin had wrought. It's not just the angels that had that longing, who wanted to know. In around 2005 or 6, a young man named Aziz also was filled with longing and questions, lots of questions. Now, these questions may seem harmless to you and to me, but to the culture from whence he came, they were not harmless. They were sin. You see, Aziz is from South Asia where I spend most of my time along with my family. And he had a father and a mother and two brothers, and he was, of course, born into a Muslim family. And as he would go every morning with his father to the mosque to do the daily prayers, he had lots of questions like, why does the Quran say this? And what does it mean? And why do we have to pray exactly like how the imam prays? And why can't we pray on our own? Can God not hear all of our prayers if they were different. He met these questions as genuine inquiry, but they were met as threats and evidence of a lack of faith. He was scolded many times and beaten many times also. Yet, he persevered to try to find the truth. And in this time, God sent a messenger not an angel, but the next best thing, a middle school boy to help clear this up for him. He was also a middle school boy at the time. It made sense. This middle school boy, as you might imagine, 14 years old, doesn't know much, but what he knows, he shares with Aziz. And in his testimony, Aziz records it this way. He said, the boy started explaining things slowly according to his knowledge. We didn't know much as we were both in eighth grade. 
But he would read the Bible and explain to me that in this verse, Jesus said this, and so many things he said about Christ, why Christ came to the earth and what he did for us and how he gave a purpose to live a life in this world and how we could be clean, Jesus told us practically. I could also see through the Bible how holy and clean Christ was. He never sinned, never married. Then I started reading the Bible slowly and read the Quran as well. Even though there's some mismatch, but still I could see Jesus never sinned. He was clean and holy. These two things I could find in the Quran. After realizing this, I wanted to know more about him and find out why these people worship him as God. Of course, Jesus being God, the God who created everything, come down to seek and to save that which is lost is the very heart of what Scripture describes as a mystery, not something like a whodunit, but rather a great truth, like a diamond waiting to be uncovered. It's the very language, mystery, that Paul uses in this morning's text, starting in verse 25, Paul writes, I have become its, meaning the church's, servant, according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Let us stop here and marvel for a moment. How good is it on the first Sunday of the year to be in the house of of the Lord, to be his saints, to have these truths revealed and delivered to us from his word. Pre-incarnate Christ Christians, the people of God before Jesus came, for as the text says, generations and ages waited and longed to see what we have weekly delivered to us by God's grace. Amen? But we'll note that this revelation, making the word of God fully known to us, is meant to come to us as, as his saints. But it's not meant to stop there. As Paul continues in the next verse, he says, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It wasn't meant to stop at God's old covenant people, but rather move through them to all the peoples of the world. Now, when we read this sentence, which says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. If we're honest, there's a temptation there, a small one perhaps, to become a little bit conceited. I mean, as we walk around, if we think of ourselves as, you know, Christ in me, the hope of glory, it's easy to be taken a little bit off track. Perhaps many of us in the last day or so started with new commitment, a Bible reading program. Probably a big day for Genesis yesterday, big day for Matthew yesterday. Maybe we're already needing to play catch up today. One of the keys to a good Bible reading program is understanding context. 
And one of the things that's going to be very helpful for us this morning is to understand what Colossians chapter 1, previous to this section, says about Christ and what it also says about us, particularly before we come to know Christ. Let's start in verse 15, one of the highest, most beautiful Christological passages in all of Scripture. It says, He, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Amen. This is how Colossians chapter 1 talks about the Lord Jesus. All things are by him and through him and for him, that he might have first place in everything. In other places, it mentions that he is the author and perfecter of our faith, that he is our strength and our song who has become our salvation. That's how Colossians chapter 1 talks about Jesus. Now, let's see how it talks about us before we know Jesus. Starting in verse 21. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions. The Word of God helps us to see that before Christ made a home in us, there was nothing good in us. That we were far from God. We were opposed to God. And this was evidenced by the evil that flowed from us. When it talks about the hope of glory being Christ in us, it's talking about what verse 22 has to say here. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. When we talk about Christ in you being the hope of glory, we're talking about Christ condescending to redeem us, to enter into our mess, our lostness, our hopelessness, and helplessness, and to take hold of us, that we might become like him, sons and daughters of the king. And if he can do that for us, then he can do that for all. That's what the hope of glory Christ in us is supposed to be. Christ in us, the hope of glory for us, and also for others through us. It certainly was for Aziz. By the time he was 17, he was attending two separate prayer meetings 
that were somewhat near to his home. And this wasn't without its challenges. You see, when Aziz's father found out that Aziz was attending these house prayer meetings, he became very angry and would scold and beat Aziz. When that didn't work, he enacted a new policy in their home that if any of the three boys, Aziz and his two brothers, should do anything wrong, all three would be punished for it. In one particularly difficult moment, Aziz's brothers were found pleading with him to abandon his pursuit of the Lord Jesus to spare them. Of course, years later, he would realize, they would realize, that his pursuit of the Lord Jesus was the only hope to spare them. In one particularly difficult evening, when Aziz's father and his two brothers had headed to the mosque, they noticed that he was not there. When they came home, they searched for him and found his flip-flops at the door with hundreds of others in one of the houses for the prayer meeting. His mother went in to retrieve him, screaming at him and scolding all of the people gathered. They brought him home, threw him in his room. But while his mother was doing that, his father was calling some of his friends over to their house where they brought knives and other weapons and said, we will wait for the people to come out of this prayer meeting and we will teach them a lesson. It took maybe a year for Aziz to sort out exactly what happened next. He knew that he was in his room praying that the Lord might spare these people. He knew that his father and his father's friends were out front. What he didn't know is that the people with whom he had been gathered and praying had already started to finish their time as they normally did, gather their shoes and walk back to their places where they stayed. It's just that his father and his friends didn't see them. They were leaving right in front of them. But they couldn't see them at all. Hour after hour, they waited until finally his father and his friends said, listen, these people are clearly scared and are not coming out. They know what we will do to them. We will spare them tonight while we all go and get some rest. But if this ever happens again, we will break into their homes and we will harm them there. It, it's clearly a miracle that the Lord intervened to save his people. But let's not miss the courage that it took for those house churches to welcome Aziz in in the first place. What I haven't told you up until now is, is that while Aziz was coming from Muslim background, neither of the two house fellowships that he was going to for prayer had a single Muslim background believer in them. They welcomed him knowing 
that it might end poorly, that it might require personal sacrifice. But they did it because they knew that the gospel was for everyone, every type of person. That is exactly what the Apostle Paul teaches Starting in verse 28, we proclaim him warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that he works powerfully in me. Church, hear the word of the Lord that we proclaim him warning everyone, teaching everyone that we might present everyone Mature in Christ. Not just the people that look or dress or act or speak like we do, but all peoples from all places. If I had to describe the primary work that I do in South Asia, it is communicating this truth that I echo along with Paul in verse 29 that I labor for this, that the church would come to know that the gospel is for everyone and embrace the stewardship of the different peoples of different faiths and different cultures that surround them. Embracing that stewardship and bringing the love of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ to them. I had a meeting that was focused on this very thing about six months ago. And I was sitting there with seven or eight pastors, and we were walking through truths similar to this one. And at the end of the first day of these meetings, a brother named Pastor Johan stood up. And he said, Brother Chris, my entire ministry, from the first church or two that I planted near my village to the church that I have planted here in the city as I have worked during the days and done church work at night, I have always been taught that we should go for the low-hanging fruit. For those people that are most similar to us, that will give us the easiest and fairest hearing to the people of our own caste. That because they are like us and we are like them, that if we invite them, they will probably come. And there's also this other caste that's pretty similar to ours. And so we have invited people from that caste also, and they also have come. And all of these churches have been made up of these two castes only. But if I'm hearing you right, what I'm hearing you say is, is that I should not just want these two castes in my church, that I should want people from every caste in my church. I said, brother, you have heard me exactly right. And he said, well, brother Chris, that changes everything. Church, I submit to you that that does indeed change everything for us as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. From where we shop to where we eat to whom we are willing to spend time with or engage in conversation in a local park or other place. If the gospel is for everyone, then we should want every kind of people in this church also. I've described that this is primarily 
the work, if I had to distill it down, that myself and my team does. But what about this team? Whether you know it or not, Hope Point partners with my team. Thank you very much, by the way. It's because of your prayer and giving and coming that we've seen some of the biggest advances that we've seen even in this last year. Whereas Ronnie quite correctly mentioned, we were able to submit some paperwork that we fully expect will mean that one of the unengaged, unreached people group names come off of our list by the Lord's grace. That's worth a clap, sure. Praise the Lord, he did it. If I had to submit what our work collectively looks like, I think Paul does a nice job of summarizing it in the first two verses of Colossians chapter 2. It's written here. Faith becomes sight. For I want you to know how greatly I am struggling for you, for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me in person. If I'm going to be honest, the work that we do here, the praying and the giving and the sending, is a work in anonymity. It's a work to care for people who have not and perhaps will never see our faces. To love those who live very far from us is the work to which we are entrusted. To put it plainly, it's to embrace being anonymous so that the Lord Jesus is never anonymous. That's what it says in verse 2. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. That is why we partner together as the International Mission Board and Southern Baptist churches from across this country. That we might labor together, strive together, pray together, give together, and sin together in anonymity so that they might get Christ. Amen? Certainly, what happened for Aziz? Some years after that incident at his house, he had come to believe and it was unshakable. And so he snuck off secretly to take baptism. And when his father found out, he threw him out of his house. And he was out on the street as an 18-year-old kid for two weeks with no money, staying in a bus stop, wondering how he would eat and how he would live and where he would go. He went to sleep one night at the bus stop and he had a dream. He had a dream that two angels came to him and picked him up and set him at the feet of the Lord Jesus. And in the dream, he became aware that his heavenly father would never cast him out and he would always have a home 
with his family of faith. This is the great and glorious work to which we all get to be a part. Aziz is married now. I got to go to his marriage a few years ago. It was the first marriage in the history of his church. One Muslim background believer marrying another Muslim background believer. And even in the last three months, I got a chance to meet his parents, who after disowning him, came and stayed at his house just in the last couple of months. Spending time with him, receiving prayer from me, and his mom and brothers are getting dangerously close to knowing and treasuring and trusting the Lord. Now, if you are very observant, you may have noticed that on my very first slide, I said we would go through verses 24 through 2 of chapter 2. And you may have also noticed that I only started in verse 25. And I am not wishing to shortchange you even one verse of the scripture. But if you've wondered why I have saved it till the end, the reason is, is because this story of Aziz, story of so many, starts like how Paul starts this chapter, this section of the chapter, I should say. In verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body. That is the church. Now there's a lot to unpack here, but at least one phrase should surprise us. That when he writes what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, we should instantly be confused and say, well, there is nothing lacking in Christ's afflictions. His perfect life and his suffering and death on the cross, his burial and then his resurrection, they are perfectly sufficient to become our righteousness before God. That for salvation, there is nothing lacking in Christ's afflictions. And that is absolutely true. So what is Paul saying here? He's not talking about what is needed for salvation. He's talking about present tense presentation. He's showing that Christ in coming demonstrates his great love for the church by giving himself up for her, for sacrificing for her. And Paul is doing the same Enduring difficulty, imprisonment, beatings for the sake of the church. By suffering, we demonstrate the value of something. When Aziz was willing to endure the suffering that he went through, that he might lay hold of Christ, the value of Christ was magnified to his family, and it has become the means by which they have investigated Jesus. But it's not just Aziz that is encountering these things these days. And in fact, in my part of the world, it is becoming increasingly common. And the New York Times, just this past week, the New York Times, I don't know if you're aware, not actually a Christian publication. 
not really interested in promoting the Christian worldview. There are multiple reports in my part of South Asia of the kind of persecution that Christians are encountering. I will read just a couple of paragraphs to you. The Christians were mid-hymn when the mob kicked in the door. A swarm of men dressed in saffron poured inside. They jumped on stage and shouted Hindu supremacist slogans. They punched pastors in the head. They threw women to the ground, sending terrified children scuttling under their chairs. They kept beating us, pulling out our hair, said Manish David, one of the pastors who was assaulted. They yelled, what are you doing here? What songs are you singing? What are you trying to do? The attack unfolded on the morning of January 26th at the Kendra Christian Center. The police soon arrived, but the officers did not touch the aggressors. Instead, they arrested and jailed the pastors and other church elders who were still dizzy from getting punched in the head. The Christians were charged with breaking a newly enforced law that targets religious conversions, one that mirrors at least a dozen other measures across the country and that has prompted a surge in mob violence against Christians. The suffering illustrates the value, but that doesn't make the suffering easy. And so in closing this morning, I'm going to ask that you join me in prayer. For my brothers half a world away, that Lord willing, I will join six days from now as my wife and I get on with our children what seems to be an interminable flight to the other side of the world. I'm going to ask that you pray for them, but I'm not going to ask that you pray only for them. I'm going to ask that you also pray for your pastors here. Because on this, the first Sunday of the year, it is right and fitting to pray for those who are leading us and who are commissioned like Paul to help us to fully understand the word of the Lord. What a blessing they are to us. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me for these things. And we'll end by asking that the Lord Jesus come quickly because we need him. Pray with me. Dear Lord, as we come, your body gathered, grateful for your work, having freshly celebrated Christmas, we recognize your worth. And we recognize that you are all that we need. God, I want to lift up these brothers half a world away and those brothers who are here also serving you. I pray that they would be filled with the fear of God and not man. I pray that you would give them great confidence in God's word, in the gospel. I pray that you would give them grace to love their families well, to grow in godliness, to love these church members and those church members, to grow in wisdom, and to rest and to rejoice in you. Lord, you are our strength and our song who has become our salvation. We need you every single day. And we ask that you would return quickly to put an end to this suffering and let us see you face to face. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.